when there's someone who has to bring a loved one to a hospital and is feeling overwhelmed and scared, they might be able to find my account and just know they're not the first person to do this. Not that I did everything perfectly. In fact, I made a lot of mistakes along the way. Sure. But at least they're not alone. Because I truly was sitting there in that hospital waiting room feeling like I was the first person to go through this because I just, I, I wasn't finding anybody who could tell me otherwise, you know? Okay, hi folks, and welcome to the Undo Anxiety Podcast. I'm Dr. John Duffy. I am your host today, and I have the um, the great privilege of talking today with Mark Lukacs. Uh, Mark is, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Mark, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, John, I'm psyched to be here. I'm glad you're here. Um, from what I know about you, you are a teacher, you're a freelance writer, and uh, and now the author of a, a book that's out now, um, My Lovely Wife in the psych ward, an intriguing title. Yeah, that, that is. It's actually, I got to credit a, uh, an online copy editor for coming up with it because I wrote a magazine article a few years which spawned the book and it was going to be called something else and then they came up with that title and it, it really resonated with readers and I think it really gets, it kind of gets people interested in what's this, what's going on here, you know? It certainly, um, it, it grabbed my attention the, the, the minute I heard it. Um, I know you are, I can tell just from talking to you, you are a, a super high energy, upbeat, dynamic guy, yet the title alone suggests you've been through some things. Do you mind giving us the short strokes on, on the, the story, um, maybe since, uh, since the time you got married or so? Sure thing. So my wife and I, I, I think you've read me. I don't pretty clearly. Uh, one of my friends compares me to Tigger as far as kind of always <laughs> bouncing off the walls. But um, my wife and I met our first week of college. We had a young romance and uh, fell in love really quickly and got married in our early twenties, just uh-huh. out of college, basically. And uh, all seemed kind of set up for a really charming uh, life. And then. Um, she started a new job. This is a woman who had tremendous success both in her career in school and also in professionally. Okay. And when we were tw- when we were twenty seven, she started this new job, and it just it it kind of stopped her in her tracks. And she um, she she got really anxious, really agitated, uh, work paralysis, couldn't finish like the most menial of tasks, mm-hmm. um, lost her appetite started having trouble sleeping and then stopping sleeping entirely. And then before too long, staying up all night and having these thoughts about someone out to get her or uh, that she wasn't worth saving or being or keeping alive, basically. And so uh, I panicked. I took her to the ER and they admitted her to the psych ward. And she actually was in there for 23 days, which is a pretty long time to be in a psych ward. Boy, that is a long psych ward stay. You are so right about that. This must have been terrifying for you. Yeah, I mean, I'm 27. I'm living in California, away from my family, away from her family. We're just getting ready to try to have a kid. And instead, it's like life pulling the rug from out under our feet and and me not having any idea what it was going to entail, like what diagnosis he was going to get, what that was going to mean as far as what the future was going to look like, right? Like, mm-hmm. were we going to be able to like have a normal relationship or was it going to be kind of forever a caregiving relationship? And could we actually try to have children? And, um, it was, it was, it really was shattering, you know? And, um, 
it's harrowing to hear you just describe it. I'm thinking of like all these elements of your life. You're you're young. You're so hopeful. You've got all this energy. She apparently is similar, right, at the time. And um, oh, and, and this must have come out of the blue for both of you. It was. And, you know, that's and her. The doctors were really perplexed because she was 27, which is a late age to have no symptoms that might indicate bipolar or schizophrenia or any of the other major diagnoses that are associated with psychosis. You're reading my so mind. So actually, out of the first one, they um, they labeled it a major depression with psychotic features. Got it. Because after the psychosis, she was suicidally depressed for like eight months. And I took time off of work and we lived like a really slow, deliberate existence. Mm. Um but when she came out of that, kind of the official take was, you know what? This is probably a one-time thing. We're going to be okay. We can we can go back to the, those plans that we had, and um, we did. You know, we got yeah. back to work. Um, we had a child. Her pregnancy was wonderful. Uh, postpartum was all going well, and then she got off her maternity leave. I was the stay-at-home dad, and two weeks later, she was back in the psych ward oh. uh, for episode number two when our son was about five months old. And oh then, my gosh, um, Mark, what, what stress that must have been, right? I mean, it is hard that, having a five-month-old and being away from family and to kind of have your wife unavailable to participate in that and to be worried about her at the same time yeah. must have been a nightmare. Yeah, and like there were some logistical things that amplified it. Like the hospital she was in was an hour away, right? Wow. So it's like... You have to drive an hour and uh, it was just, it was brutal. And honestly, there was also kind of the existential challenge to it where we, out of the first one, that was an existential crisis in itself. But the second one was like, okay, this isn't a one-time thing. Right. We, this is in fact part of our past, present, and very likely our future, you know, and we're going to have to learn how to adapt to what at the that's where she got the bipolar diagnosis, which means this could come and go throughout the rest of her life, and um, we're just going to need to be prepared for it so that it doesn't have to be so uh, just like disruptive for us. I mean, of course, it's going to be difficult if she gets hospitalized. And then the last part of the story is that she did, in fact, have a third hospitalization. Um, right. And so that's where we are now. She's been she's been really solid for the last two and a half years. Um, relationship wise, things are going awesome. Health wise, things are going awesome. But, uh, we know that there's a chance it could keep, it could come crashing back into our lives and we're just going to have to be ready for it and try to protect our son from it. Try to keep her healthy and stable and try to also keep me going too. There's, there's two things that strike me, Mark, already, and, I, and we haven't even gotten to the heart of, of your piece of the story, is right, that when right. you talk about you, your wife, your son, you use the words we, and oh, you know, yeah. very much. And, and also, I, you know, for, for a story that would typically, I, I think, be delivered and sound so dark and difficult and brutal, you sound like still a very upbeat guy. Um, I assume there are reasons for both of these things. Yeah. So first off, we, um, our family mantra that we, we like use it as our grace before dinner is we're all in this together. That's something that came from my parents and my family about 10 years ago. And, um, we really live by that. And when, when Julie was hospitalized, I called my insurance provider and I kind of told them what I was going through and, you know, I've got this terrifying situation and can I get help? 
And they said, yeah, we can set you up with a therapist for 30 minutes once a month. And that was it. <laughs> oh and my just, gosh. You've got to be kidding me, okay. man. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for nothing. Nothing know? at all. So I, I actually went out of network. We caught, I, I made the choice to spend my ARF money so that I could like cope with this. And I think that really my view of mental illness is so much that, uh, it is. It's such a shared experience. And of mm-hmm. course, we need to treat the diagnosis. And the person who has the diagnosis is the one who has to take the medication and d- deal with their set of challenges. But all, the circle, the inner circle is all impacted by it. <clears throat> and I think the best way to find a holistic solution is if you're, you're bringing everyone's perspective to the table. You know, so I there's think- that. I, I love that. And, and, you know, I work with a lot of families um, and oftentimes where there is um, a, a bipolar or, or a psychotic sure. depression. And, um, and if more families worked that way, what happens often, and you're, and you're probably aware of this, is families tend to fragment in, in, in the face of this kind of trauma instead of coming together. And it sounds like you very deliberately from, you know, the beginning decided, no, this isn't going to pull us apart. We are going to come together. We will be stronger, probably in a way, as a result of all of this. You know, it's funny, John. That was certainly the case when we were in the crisis. Mm-hmm. In the crisis, I, I'd i already been in love with Julia for almost a decade by the time she got sick. We had this really big gulf of experience between us where she had her year of mental health crisis and I had my year of caregiving and they were so different and we viewed each other so differently. Yeah. And that was where we were really tested as a couple. We was trying to then rebuild knowing that, you know, we had a pretty imbalanced year and I was feeling pretty needy emotionally and, um, fatigued. And meanwhile, Julia was like, I just want to have fun. Like I just got my ass kicked (laughs) for the last year. I just want to have like, let's go enjoy ourselves. And I'm, I'm kind of seeking him. I was meanwhile slipping into my own depression of like, uh, caregiving fatigue where I'm like, I, I'm not up for that right now. I need some caregiving and, and, and love and, uh, tenderness now reciprocated. So, um, but yeah, there's no question about it that I think after the last seven years, this all started for us seven, actually it's almost eight years now at this yeah. point, but that, um, we are without a doubt as a family, a much stronger unit because of it. And I also credit working on the book as being a big part of that too, because you work, you just said you work with families. Family therapy is hard because you have to go in and say the things that you deliberately avoid saying. Right, <laughs> right, right. That's the idea. It, it's supposed to be because a safe enough so forum to do that. Right, right. right exactly. They're so, they're so hard to say and hear. Yes. And so the idea of this book was it, it forced us to, it was kind of like this extended process of couples therapy with the book being the moderator. And, um, and that was how we help to sort our issues out and really feel like we could reconnect where we are on what feels like really strong footing today. And, and it seems like such a gutsy thing to do to, to put all of this in a book and, um, you know, not, not just, not just a, a journal or a diary or, you know, um, something that's going to remain private, but in a book that you intend for other people to, to read and to look at. Um, and, um, and, and you're going to be vigorous about, you know, kind of marketing that and getting it out there. Um, there must be 
messages within those pages that, that you think are going to either touch other people, help other people, um, enlighten them in some way? Well, you know, my goal is I, when Julie was hospitalized, I was obviously feeling a lot. Yeah. But what surprised me was how alone I felt because I went to the internet, as we do, to try to find answers. And I found a lot about what her symptoms were. Mm -hmm. um, I found nothing about what it was like to be in the caregiving role. Interesting. Uh, and I was really... I was really surprised at that void of like a community. And I know there's organizations and I, I actually went to some support groups, but they were hard for me to make logistically. Mm -hmm. um, but just this absence of people talking about the caregiving experience. And so that really became one of my uh, biggest motivations to write this publicly is that my hope is that when there's someone who has to bring a loved one to a hospital and is feeling overwhelmed and scared, they might be able to find my account and just know they're not the first person to do this. Not that I did everything perfectly. In fact, I made a lot of mistakes along the way. Sure. But at least they're not alone. Because I truly was sitting there in that hospital waiting room feeling like I was the first person to go through this because I just I I wasn't finding anybody who could tell me otherwise, you know? Yeah. And so um that really is a, a is a major reason, and I'm so I'm so proud and inspired by my, my wife's courage to be willing to do that. Because look, there's a difference, right? Like I talk about caregiving, but it's not my diagnosis; it's hers. And so right. there's, there's an added degree of privacy for hers that she's been willing to expose because I think she too believes that the book has potential to help caregivers, but also to help people who are going through what she's felt and just. You know, the, the stigma around mental illness is something that hold them back from connecting with people who could help, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, no, I think that's, uh, well, that's a big part of what I'm trying to do through this podcast. And it sounds like what you're trying to exactly. do through your book. Um, and I think about exactly. the two of you together, you know, you and Julia. And I, one thing I love to hear and I kind of marvel at, Mark, is the admiration in your voice for her even now, you know, like, so you, she goes through all of this and, and I can tell, you know, that, that, that you have this ongoing love story, um, that includes this, th this mental illness. Um, and I think that's no small thing either that, that, you know, this doesn't have to be something that rends you apart. It just, it just becomes part of your, part of your life. And, and the courage between the two of you of putting this out is, is breathtaking to me, especially in light of this idea that you felt so alone and decided, you know what? I think I want to be the last guy who feels that alone. Exactly. And, and, you know, I, I actually, this kind of harkens back to the title, something you were saying, like, I, again, I didn't make it up, but I love it. I've grown to really love it because I still do adore, uh, Julia, <laughs> you know, I still feel that 18 year old crush that I had, um, when I first saw her and like, her illness and her hospitalizations, it's just, I, all it is has broadened my understanding of her and my definition of her, but it mm -hmm. hasn't changed how I, you know, love her basically. You know, that that's beautiful. And, and Mark, I have to say, you're, you're going to, after this podcast airs, you're going to be husband of the year. You're making us all look bad, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so if you're willing to share with us, that's not the goal. <laughs> I know, I know. It's just organic. I can tell. Um, 
But it, it, there, there's an element of this that you share in a story in Men's Health magazine, I think. Um, yes, yeah. And if you're willing to tell us a little bit about in real time, as Julia is in the midst of um, being quite symptomatic, you, you had this method um, that you kind of devise. If it sounds pretty organic to read it, for for managing your um, your discomfort and um, and what you were going through. Do you mind sharing with us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I am an active person. There's no getting around it. I grew up surfing. I I um, grew up playing a lot of sports. And um, when Julia was out of the hospital, home, in my care, I was with her pretty much all day and uh, didn't really get a break. And she was taking these heavy medications and going to sleep really early. Like mm -hmm. I'm talking 7 o'clock, she'd be out. And I'd just sit around and be pretty antsy and need to do something but not know what to do. And so instead I just would like eat pizza and kind of be gross and um, <laughs> and feel worse as a result of it, right? I can imagine and just feel awful. I mean just yeah. knowing – feeling like, oh, gee, everything's just falling apart around me. So one night I – Julia under this medication, she slept so deeply she like didn't move. I mean she'd lay down and – 14 hours later, wake up and, and basically be in the exact same position. Wow. And so I took a risk. And after she'd been asleep for a few hours, I went out for a run. It was about 10 o'clock at night. And we used to live really close to the beach in San Francisco, only a few blocks away. So I went and I ran down uh, on the sand for an hour. And Wow. And what was it like? I mean, what 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 did it do Commit? for you? It, it, sounds, it sounds it sounds like an instinct to get out there and run. It was it was it was like resorting to like my our like ancient hunter gatherer impulse of just yes. like go move and get get your system moving and you're going to feel better because the thing is it's like I um of course there's all these like biochemical things right I'm getting endorphins all of a sudden and. I was just, my mood was better. And it was, of course I thought about Julia the entire run, but just by running and by flooding my body with this system of like these reassuring messages of, Hey, you're being active. You're, you're feeling healthy. You're feeling good. Just the way that I thought about things was so much more optimistic. I felt so much more, uh, physically strong. So therefore like emotionally and mentally strong, like, Hey, I was up for this challenge. And yes. that became a huge part of what I was doing. I, I, I go running every night and then now to this day, I still, I've kind of gone a little overboard in some ways. I, <laughs> yes. What have you done? <laughs> How have you upped the ante since then? So after her, after she was completely better, she, she's from Italy. She went to go visit her parents in Italy and I stayed in California and I actually biked down the coast of California, um, by myself <laughs> just to get out there and yes. it's really, it's, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't think about this till long after, but I was kind of trying to escape my, the tragedy of the year. And yet in escaping my route was bringing me home the entire time. Right. Oh, and right. So right. Like I, was, I was like running away, but I was still running home because I was just trying to be able to like get myself back. And so then I did an Ironman, which is my first and only triathlon. And now that I'm a dad, I don't get to do as many long distance things. I have run a 50 kilometer race 
on a, a mountain here called Mount Diablo. It was about, I don't know, maybe four or 5,000 elevation of feet of climbing. And My so God, I, I, amazing. Like, I still like to push myself and, but like, I just went for a run out on the mountain an hour ago because there's no question about it. What I've learned is that hour of exercise is my maintenance time. Mm. It is my time to, uh, I, I, I kind of, my analogy is that like, I'm, we're all like a pair of, uh, earbuds, like those white Apple earbuds and you put them in your pocket and inevitably they get tangled up. Right. Right. And so me going for a run or a surf or a swim or a bike ride or whatever is like how I go and I untangle the earbuds and then, then I can get back and I feel like I have a crisper view and I think it makes me feel strong to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's the most straightforward way to put it is like, I know because I push myself up a mountain, for example, um, that my, since my body's capable of that, that I also have other capabilities that I could push myself through. I'm kind of a big guy. Uh, I grew up playing soccer. I've got sort of like a rugby player's build. Yeah. And so, so long distance running is not exactly what I'm built for. <laughs> right. There's a category of um, runners. When you do a, a trail run, if you're over 200 pounds, they call you a Clydesdale. And I, it's, it's, I am in the Clydesdale category and I love it actually. <laughs> but my point is, is like this, and I'm not, I'm not really designed for this, but I do it anyway because it makes me feel stronger. And so like when I'm feeling maybe emotionally fragile about something, maybe I'm a, wounded by something someone said to me or I'm worried about something that I'm going through, I, it really helps to instill confidence in how I can handle my own emotions and my own expectations in other situations. You know, plus it's just so fun. Like I really have connected to running. Um, there's all these different hypotheses about like we may have evolved as a species to be upright because that helped us to run down our, our prey, sure. you know, and just how primitive it is. And like, we're in such a thoroughly modern world and there's something I really love about feeling like I'm, I'm tapping into our ancestral roots by just going for a run in the woods by myself, you know, uh, it just feels so human when a lot of what we do feels so digital, you know? Oh, man, Mark. You know, I, I, I do some running myself and just hearing you talk about it makes me want to get out there, first of all, this afternoon and go for a yes. run because it, it is – there is something so base – and primitive and resetting about it. And, um, and I can't say I enjoy every second of a run, but I do enjoy the process of it. And, and at the back end of a run, I always feel energized. Like I, I work, I work with a lot of people and oftentimes the, that's the first thing I want them to do. If they come in depressed or anxious or with a family member who's struggling with something like, like you, you have been, my press is often, boy, the first thing I'd like you to do is give some gift to your body. And it's always running. You know, I always want them to move that body because I know there's something vigorous and healing. And I love this idea that it makes you feel stronger. That yeah. is that is so key, right? And especially when you're going through something you didn't anticipate that is so difficult. And you know, I, I even now with my scheduling my runs, because I need to schedule them, otherwise I won't get to them, I might 
be like, all right, it's time to run, but I really don't feel up for it. <laughs> right. And I just always say, I'm not going to feel up for it for 10 minutes. And once I power through that 10 minutes, I'm going to feel amazing for the rest of the day. So do it. You know, um, another thing that I really love too is surfing. I think there's something also equally primitive uh -huh. maybe more so because like we all evolved from water forms and, uh, as my friend likes to say, the earth is 70% water and we're about 70% salt water as well. Um, that getting in the ocean, I know you can't do that out in Chicago, but like here in California, you can go out and take a dip in the cold ocean and go swim with the waves. And that is another just amazing way to recalibrate. And heal, right? I mean, that one exactly. thing I notice when I get in the water, I heal. And um, one, one element of, of this that, that um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on is when I'm running or in particular if I have the opportunity to swim in the ocean, I feel young. I feel young and excited and like a kid, you know, excited to be exactly. out there. Do you feel that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I look at my kid. My son's five, right? Yeah runs he runs everywhere he doesn't have to like be told to go run he doesn't need to go and make an hour in his schedule it's like if he's having fun with something he's running to get there to it and he's running in the middle of it and so it is it's like a childish way to be joyful is to run and like similarly when we go to the ocean together he's mesmerized and all he wants to do is splash around and so there's a there's just like a return to innocence that i love too so if you're listening, you know, even if you have that reluctance that Mark is describing, those first 10 minutes, you know, once you make it through 10 minutes, that's nothing. Yep. You are you are on your way. So get out there and take a run. Um, I noticed I in, in the story you wrote, Mark, that um, you, at least that first night, maybe all the time, you listen to music when you run. Is that right? Yeah. You know, it's I, I would say I'm about a 30-30-30 split. 30% of the times I listen to music, 30% uh, of the times I actually listen to podcasts, and then the other 30% of the time I'll go no audio and just enjoy the sound of being out in nature by myself. I love I love the split. It, it, musically, is there, so, is there a go-to? Is there something that you just love to listen to that fires you up and gets you out there excited? Well, you know, that's, it's bizarre, actually. I don't need the, like, driving, pulsing beat that, like, <laughs> others do. Right. I actually can listen to some pretty low-key music. Um, I just love beautiful music, whatever it is. And so musicians like Sufi and Stevens, I, I, back when I was first going running at night, I was listening to a band called Animal Collective oh, a sure. lot. Yeah. And they're, they're not necessarily, like, a, an exercise class band you know right no but, not at uh, all um nor, nor is no, Sue john stevens just kind of uh, relaxing more than anything else exactly and it's a, because i'm not out there i sometimes i try to run fast but i'm not out there to set prs and, and break records i'm out there to, to for a different reason and mm -hmm. so i find the music that more fits my goals as compared to a music that's necessarily going to make me run harder you know yep yep um in, in the wake of all this, um, I'm just curious, how does, is, is there a correlation in any way? I, I always think about the law of attraction and, uh -huh. you know, uh, what you draw to yourself. Does, does Julia's mindset change as yours changes? You know what I mean? As you feel stronger, as you feel healthier, um, do, do you notice any difference in, in, in your wife 
um, as she's struggling through this mental illness? Huh. I don't know. That's a really tough question. I, I actually haven't really thought about that. Yeah. I would say that I would say that when she's in the language we use is whether she's sick in quotes, which right. means she's in a psychotic episode or in a post psychosis depression, or she's not sick, right? Got it. Yep. When she's sick, it's so deep and consuming that it's hard to I'd like to think that my enthusiasm could help rally her, but I've given up on that like self-congratulatory approach. <laughs> right. It's way bigger than me, you know? Yeah. But I do think that we certainly feed each other's positivity now in our relationship. I mean, similarly with like, with kindness too. Like, um, if one of us takes the first step to either be happy in a moment or to be kind to each other in a moment, mm-hmm. then that makes it a lot easier for the other to be happy or kind, you know? Yes. And so, um, that's more day to day though, as compared to in times of crisis, but that's an important thing for both of us still, like, especially the kindness one. Like, I, I think it's easy to take someone you've been with for a long time for granted and not go out of your way to be gentle and kind with them. And so if one of us does that to the other, all of a sudden, like your radar goes off. You're like, oh, that, that felt really nice. And I'm going to try to do that and reciprocate that now. And it becomes this really nice, um, self-sustaining cycle, you know? Oh, I love that. Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, is there, is there any message that you would like somebody who is going through something similar? You know, that, that guy who's hitting that emergency room for the first yep. time or that, or that wife, you know, that, that yep. you want them to hear, or you want them to know, um, that gives them maybe that feeling that they're not alone, that they don't feel the way you did that on day one. Well, yeah, I would say that, um, I'm glad we've talked about this exercise aspect because, what I would say to a caregiver is take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember there's the famous in your, when you're in an airplane, they say that if the oxygen mask pop out, you're supposed to put yours on first. Right. And I remember as a, I never, that never made sense to me. Cause I'm like, that's selfish. You know, like you got to help people first. Right. But, um, now I totally get it because if you're not taking care of yourself, you need help right. <laughs> and, and you're not, able. You're not up for the challenge of fully supporting somebody else. So what I would say is to anybody uh, who is, whether facing some sort of health crisis themselves or trying to support someone in a health crisis, is make time for self-care. Go out with friends. Go out and do something that makes you feel good and happy, whether it's activity like it is for me, or read a book you like, or whatever it is. Just do something that's self-sustaining because it's so critical because you have no idea how long you might be in this. You know, I right. mean, her first episode dragged out between the hospital and the depression over nine months, you know, my gosh. a long time to be in a, in a kind of a survival crisis mode. Um, and I needed that like self-care. Otherwise I wouldn't have made it, you know, I would have crumbled. That's uh, it's it. There is no Im- more important message. I, I I so appreciate you taking the time to share that with us. And um, doing a podcast is is interesting, Mark, because um, sometimes I talk to somebody and it's just a gift to me. You have a most 
amazing, inspiring vibe. And so I really, really Gosh, appreciate um, the, the, the time. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm really enjoying hearing. I, I feel lucky for your patients who you work with, who you help them oh. uh, take care of themselves. Yeah, I, I feel like you're doing good work with people. Well, thank you for that. Um, please tell people um, where they can find you and how they can find um, My Lovely Wife in the Psych Ward, your new book. Sure thing. So by the time this comes out, this the book should be in major bookstores. It's available online at major retailers. Um, you can go to my website, which is marklukach, L-U-K-A-C-H dot com. There's ordering options there. You can read some of my past work. Um, yeah, and uh, and also drop me a line. It, it, what's been probably the most humbling part of all this is when I get emails from people saying, thanks for sharing your story. Now let me tell you what I'm going through. And that's so uh, – it's so grounding. It's so invigorating to know that my work is resonating, that like yeah. people are connecting to this story. And it's also just, it feels so, uh, I don't know. It, it just feels so good to know that people are connecting and yeah. not about this. That's yeah. the idea, right? I mean, so that nobody's yeah. in this alone and, you know, like people are going to suffer uh, and they're, and these, these mental illnesses aren't going away, but we can, we can help each other through. I, I love right. that. Um, Mark, once again, thank you so much for, for joining me today. I insist that we do this again. Uh, we have a lot Not more good. to talk about. We haven't even talked about baseball, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and my best to you and to Julia and to your five-year-old guy who is a, a very lucky guy with, uh, with a great father. Um, folks, you can find uh, the uh, Undo Anxiety podcast on iTunes here, Podbean, Stitcher, liveleadplay.com, or WGN+. As always, I thank you for joining me. Um, and uh, on behalf of Mark and myself, uh, thanks for your time, and I will talk to you next time. Take care.